Chapter Seven of Mr. Gilfill's Love Story from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Seven. Caterina tore herself from Anthony with the desperate effort of one who has just self-recollection enough to be conscious that the fumes of charcoal will master his senses unless he bursts away for himself to the fresh air. But when she reached her own room, she was still too intoxicated with that momentary revival of old emotions, too much agitated by the sudden return of tenderness in her lover, to know whether pain or pleasure predominated. It was as if a miracle had happened in her little world of feeling, and made the future all vague, a dim morning haze of possibilities, instead of the sombre wintry daylight and clear rigid outline of painful certainty she felt the need of rapid movement she must walk out in spite of the rain happily there was a thin place in the curtain of clouds which seemed to promise that now about noon the day had a mind to clear up caterina thought to herself i will walk to the mosslands and carry mr bates the comforter i have made for him and then lady cheverel will not wonder so much at my going out at the hall door she found Rupert, the old bloodhound, stationed on the mat, with the determination that the first person who was sensible enough to take a walk that morning should have the honour of his approbation and society. As he thrust his great black and tawny head under her hand, and wagged his tail with vigorous eloquence, and reached the climax of his welcome by jumping up to lick her face, which was at a convenient licking height for him, Caterina felt quite grateful to the old dog for his friendliness. Animals are such agreeable friends. They ask no questions, they pass no criticisms. The Mosslands was a remote part of the grounds, encircled by the little stream issuing from the pool, and certainly for a wet day Caterina could hardly have chosen a less suitable walk, for though the rain was abating and presently ceased altogether, there was still a smart shower falling from the trees which arched over the greater part of her way. But she found just the desired relief from her feverish excitement in laboring along the wet paths with an umbrella that made her arm ache. This amount of exertion was to her tiny body what a day's hunting often was to Mr. Gilfill, who at times had his fits of jealousy and sadness to get rid of, and wisely had recourse to nature's innocent opium, fatigue. When Caterina reached the pretty arched wooden bridge which formed the only entrance to the mosslands for any but webbed feet, the sun had mastered the clouds, and was shining through the boughs of the tall elms that made a deep nest for the gardener's cottage, turning the raindrops into diamonds, and inviting the nasturtium flowers creeping over the porch and low-thatched roof to lift up their flame-coloured heads once more. The rooks were cawing with many-voiced monotony, apparently, by a remarkable approximation to human intelligence, finding great conversational resources in the change of weather. The mossy turf, studded with the broad blades of marsh-loving plants, told that Mr. Bates's nest was rather damp in the best of weather, but he was of opinion that a little external moisture would hurt no man who was not perversely neglectful of that obvious and providential antidote, rum and water. 
Caterina loved this nest. Every object in it, every sound that haunted it, had been familiar to her from the days when she had been carried thither on Mr. Bates's arm, making little cawing noises to imitate the rooks, clapping her hands at the green frogs leaping in the moist grass, and fixing grave eyes on the gardener's fowls cluck-clucking under their pens. And now the spot looked prettier to her than ever. It was so out of the way of Miss Asher, with her brilliant beauty and personal claims and small civil remarks. She thought Mr. Bates would not be come into his dinner yet, so she would sit down and wait for him. But she was mistaken. Mr. Bates was seated in his armchair, with his pocket-handkerchief thrown over his face, as the most eligible mode of passing away those superfluous hours between meals when the weather drives a man indoors. Roused by the furious barking of his chained bulldog, he descried his little favourite approaching, and forthwith presented himself at the doorway, looking disproportionately tall compared with the height of his cottage. The bulldog, meanwhile, unbent from the severity of his official demeanour, and commenced a friendly interchange of ideas with Rupert. Mr. Bates's hair was now grey, but his frame was none the less stalwart, and his face looked all the redder, making an artistic contrast with the deep blue of his cotton neckerchief, and of his linen apron twisted into a girdle round his waist. "'Why, dang my bootins, Miss Teeny!' he exclaimed. Who come ye to kumut dabblin your fate like a little Moscovy duck sich a day as this? Not but what I'm delated to say ye. Here, Hester, he called to his old hump-backed housekeeper. Take the young lady's umbrella and spread it out to dray. Come, come in, Miss Teeny, and set ye doon by the fire, and dray your fate, and have some at warm to keep ye from catchin' cold. Mr. Bates led the way, stooping under the door-places, into his small sitting-room, and, shaking the patchwork cushion in his armchair, moved it to within a good roasting distance of the blazing fire. "'Thank you, Uncle Bates.' Caterina kept up her childish epithets for her friends, and this was one of them. "'Not quite so close to the fire, for I am warm with walking.' "'Eh, but your shoes are fain and wet, and ye must put up your fate on the fender. Rare big fate, bain't em, about the says of a good big spoon.' I wonder you can make a shift to stand on him. Now, what'll ye have to warm your inside? A drop a hot elder wane now? No, not anything to drink, thank you. It isn't very long since breakfast, said Caterina, drawing out the comforter from her deep pocket. Pockets were capacious in those days. Look here, Uncle Bates, here is what I came to bring you. I made it on purpose for you. You must wear it this winter, and give your red one to old Brooks. Eh, Miss Teeny, this is a beauty, and ye made it all wi' your little fingers for an old feller lake May. I take it very caned on ye, and I believe ye I'll wear it, and be prude on it, too. These thrapes blue and white now, they make it uncommon pretty. Yes, that will suit your complexion, you know, better than the old scarlet one. I know Mrs. Sharp will be more in love with you than ever when she sees you in the new one. My complexion, ye little rogue, you're a laughin' at me. But talkin' o' complexions, what a beautiful colour the bride as is to be has on her cheeks. Dang my bootins! She looks fain and handsome a hossback, sits as upright as a dart with a figure like a statty. 
Mistress Sharp has promised to put me behind one of the doors when the ladies are coming doon to dinner, so as I may say the young un a full dress, wi' all her curls and that. Mistress Sharp says she's almost beautifuler nor my lady was when she was young, and I think you'll newt feign man in the country as'll come up to that. Yes, Miss Asher is very handsome, said Caterina, rather faintly, feeling the sense of her own insignificance returning at this picture of the impression Miss Asher made on others. Well, and I hope she's good, too, and'll make a good nace to Sir Christopher and my lady. Mistress Griffin, the maid, says as she's rather tatchy and fine-fouting about her clues, like. But she's young, she's young. That'll wear off when she's got a husband and children and somewhat else to think on. Sir Christopher's fain and elated, I can see. He says to me the other morning, says he, Well, Bates, what do you think of your young mistress as is to be? And I says, Way, your honour, I think she's as fain a lass as ever I set eyes on, and I wish the captain luck in a fain family, and your honour life and health to see it. Mr. Warren says as the master's all for forwarding the wedding, and it'll very lake be afore the autumn's oot. As Mr. Bates ran on, Caterina felt something like a painful contraction at her heart. Yes, she said, rising, I dare say it will. Sir Christopher is very anxious for it. But I must go, Uncle Bates. Lady Cheverel will be wanting me, and it is your dinner-time. Nay, my dinner don't signify a bit, but I moosen cape ye if my lady wants ye. Though I haven't thanked ye half a noof for the comforter, the rap rascal, as they call it. My feckens, it's a beauty. But ye look very weight and sadly, Miss Teeny. I doubt ye're poorly, and this walkin' in the wet isn't good for ye. Oh, yes, it is, indeed said Caterina, hastening out and taking up her umbrella from the kitchen floor. I must really go now, so good-bye. She tripped off, calling Rupert, while the good gardener, his hands thrust deep in his pockets, stood looking after her and shaking his head with rather a melancholy air. She gets more nesh and delicate than ever, he said, half to himself and half to Hester, I shouldn't wonder if she fades away like them cyclamens as I transplanted. She puts me a mind on em somehow, hanging on their little thin stalks, so weight and tinder. The poor little thing made her way back, no longer hungering for the cold moist air as a counteractive of inward excitement, but with a chill at her heart which made the outward chill only depressing. The golden sunlight beamed through the dripping boughs like a shekinah or visible divine presence, and the birds were chirping and trilling their new autumnal song so sweetly it seemed as if their throats, as well as the air, were all the clearer for the rain. But Caterina moved through all this joy and beauty like a poor wounded leveret painfully dragging its little body through the sweet clover tufts, for it sweet in vain. Mr. Bates's words about Sir Christopher's joy, Miss Asher's beauty, and the nearness of the wedding, had come upon her like the pressure of a cold hand, rousing her from confused dozing to a perception of hard, familiar realities. It is so with emotional natures whose thoughts are no more than the fleeting shadows cast by feeling. To them words are facts and even when known to be false, have a mastery over their smiles and tears. 
Caterina entered her own room again, with no other change from her former state of despondency and wretchedness than an additional sense of injury from Anthony. His behaviour towards her in the morning was a new wrong. To snatch a caress when she justly claimed an expression of penitence, of regret, of sympathy, was to make more light of her than ever. End of chapter 7 of Mr. Gilfil's Love Story